It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 251, The Rise of Julius Caesar. Luke 2.36, There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. A widow named Anna devotes her life to God. She stays in the temple area and devotes herself to prayer and fasting. And at this stage in our story, the temple grounds are a mess. There's siege after siege, and there's brother fighting its brother, and there's civil wars going on. But it says that she never leaves the temple grounds, and she's a widow for decades. And in this stage of their story, she's, she's literally on the temple grounds, and it says she's there every day. God knows her devotion, and he listens to her prayers. And then she sees the confusion and chaos and all the power brokers of society in, in Jerusalem, but she continues in her prayer and her fasting. And she's not the only one. There's a man named Simeon as well who's there. And God even reveals to Simeon that he will not die until the Messiah is revealed. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-five. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. In this episode, Pompey and all his accomplishments will soon be overwhelmed by the accomplishments of another. Now back in Rome, Crassus and Pompey are the richest members of society in Rome. Their shadowy agents rule one political party of the Roman Republic against classic loud Republicans led by Cicero and Cato in the other party. Cicero and Cato support the people in their reasoning and purposes of the ancient traditions of Rome, while more ambitious and influential men desire more powers of the state. The annual consulship in Rome is a hotly tested contest each year, and the Roman Senate and judiciary facilities are ripe with hunting down corruption, which is becoming rampant. And Julius Caesar at this stage has reached out to Crassus, and Sime serves his interest due to a massive debt he has incurred throwing games and lavish attention on himself. And he's quite a popular individual in Rome. Caesar forms a political alliance with Pompey and Crassus. And Caesar marries off his daughter, Julia, to Pompey, who seems to really love her. The alliance becomes known as the First Triumvirate, which means rule of three men. Their influence and treasure ran the government indirectly. With their support, Caesar becomes consul in the year 59 BC. Caesar passes a law for redistributing public lands to the poor by force if necessary. And Pompey and Crassus are behind this, and I'd assume Crassus benefited the most. And the other political party hates the new law, and he wants to punish Caesar legally because of his corrupt actions all through his consulship. But they cannot until his consulship is over. And being consul makes Julius Caesar immune to legal action. Caesar evades their legal threats by getting a military assignment after his, his one-year consulship is over. His assignment is governor over Cisalpine Gaul, northern Italy and its surrounding area. 
And with this, he obtains the command of four legions for five years. This military proconsulship of sorts begins another chapter in the life of Caesar. And it's complicated, but Caesar needs some space from Rome, or he'll just become another great politician. And he needs a military success to spur his ambitions. And this proconsulship gives him this opportunity. Using many excuses and long-winded stories, Caesar literally invades Gaul or modern France. Now we see Caesar entering the history books. And remember, he's bowed his knee to ruthless ambition, and now he has two more legions. He has six legions with 42,000 soldiers at his disposal, and he's invading France. And the Gauls have always been a threat to Rome, and more than once the Gauls have moved down into the Italian peninsula and raided and, and even attacked Rome. Caesar slowly takes Gaul, modern France, and the campaign's going to go on for at least eight years. He takes his time and sends letters back to Rome. And I remember studying these letters in Latin class in high school. Even today, they were used in Latin textbooks. In fact, you can read the compilation of his letters and buy them on Amazon called the Gallic Wars. It's excellent PR. And Caesar was constantly flowing back and sending back these letters uh, to touting how amazing it is and everything that he's done back to Rome. And his agents would read the letters in the Senate and he would distribute spoils constantly throughout the city. And the name Caesar was spoken all through the city over and over. And this is where some of the history can get clouded with his own propaganda, for Caesar and his successors will be writing the history books. And as we advance into Caesar's campaigns, the first century B.C. is a history lover's dream. The complexity and detail, the stories are incredible, with quotable references abounding. But this is such a paradox of worlds as Christians. It's really the glory of man versus the glory of God. And it's such a setup for the time of Jesus and how he's not going to come as everyone expects him to, but instead he comes as the sacrifice in a time of aggressive natures, in a time of hostile actions, in a time of the glory of man. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. One of the first true engagements of Julius Caesar was with the Helvetii. And according to Caesar, there was over 400,000 migrating Helvetii. And the Helvetii were a German tribe, and they were probably fleeing other Germanic tribes and headed into Gaul. And instead, Caesar engages them by tricking them, and then he annihilates them or enslaves the entirety of the tribe. And from that day forward, Caesar never has problems with debt again. Because by enslaving them and selling them to slave traders, he took the money. And he's becoming extremely wealthy. 
I mean, in many ways, it's it's almost the the politicians in Rome are saying that Caesar is creating his own sub kingdom um, in Gaul, and he's their king. And slowly, through force of alliances and deception, Caesar takes Gaul up to the place of modern Paris. And in 55 BC, one of the scenes has Caesar having to constantly fend off Germanic tribes and their incursions. And in order to prevent this and make a point, Caesar builds a bridge over the Rhine. And the Rhine's like the Mississippi in the United States, and it's an enormous river. And the fact that in, in this bridge that he builds shows his engineering skills. He even tells the Senate he did it at the stupid pace of 10 days. Caesar marches into Germania and engages some of the tribes and then does something amazing. He marches back across the bridge and burns the bridge with the tribes of Germania watching. Let's just say the Germanian tribes didn't raid Gaul for some time. Caesar's means of dominance over the Gauls was ruthless. He would deceive some, steal daughters of some chieftains and threaten them. He would steal the wives of other local chieftains. He was ruthless and dirty and very mafia-like in his dominance. And he advances into modern Holland and finds great resistance which lasts for some time until he takes more and more of the land. Once he feels at rest ever so slightly, Caesar does something crazy. He launches a naval invasion of Britain. And the first invasion was a failure, and he attempted another invasion, or let's call it a reconnaissance in force, the next season. He marches his army through modern southern Britain and made friends and enemies. And seeing the vastness of the land and the investment required to take it, Caesar withdraws back to Gaul. Britain will not be invested by Romans for another century or so, but a new target is now on Rome's scope. Meanwhile, back in Rome, the first triumvirate crumbles. First Julia, Caesar's daughter, dies in childbirth. And upon her death, Pompey refuses to continue his alliance with Caesar. Next, Crassus wants his piece of the action. He assembles a huge army and decides he's going to invade Parthia. His ambition is enormous, and he wants to add modern Iraq and parts of Iran to the Roman Empire. He launches his invasion in 53 BC. The campaign is an absolute disaster. The Parthians, with their horse archers, withdraw and lead the Romans into a deep desert away from water sources. And at Carrhae, the Roman army is defeated soundly. Of the 42,000 Romans, half are killed, a quarter surrender, and the remainder escape. The famous Roman standards of the legions are now in the hands of the Parthians. Crassus dies in the battle, and the Parthians strike deep into modern Turkey and Syria. The disaster opens a door for the Parthians to eventually strike deep into Judah, and even eventually strike Jerusalem. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Hieronicus, the Romans appoint him as the primary tax collector for Judah, and he fails time and time again. Herod, who is under him, steps in uh, to assist Hieronicus and takes over his role as high priest indirectly, and eventually he receives from the Romans the administrative control of Judea that include local militias and even tax collecting. And all the Romans see Hieronicus as just incompetent. And the man under him, his prime minister, Herod, has somehow manipulated his way to uh, allow Hieronicus to um, let him run the show, basically. And the Romans actually see Herod as the true, um, the true administrator behind the kingdom. And as long as he brings in the tax revenue, they don't have a problem. 
All the while, his son is standing by his side. This is Herod's son. He's standing by his side, learning about power politics from his father. And often as these men trudge the streets of Jerusalem and bully the authentic worshipers of God, they would run into a woman by the name of Anna, who from Luke 2 worshipped the Lord night and day. Oh, she would witness many changes that would come to Jerusalem. Another such occurrence in Israel at this time would be a man named Simeon, who would have a revelation that the Son of Man would be born before he dies. Luke 2.26 It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. No doubt a whispering was going on throughout the land of a Messiah that would come to restore the disorder in all places of the earth and naturally restore order from the hated Romans who were conquering and dying at will. Back in Gaul, Caesar's investment in Britain has its price. As he is away, the tribes of Gaul revolt in a massive way, a truly massive way. Large swathes of Gauls maul some of the independent legions until he rejoins his legions into one large army. The Gauls rally around a local chieftain named Vicingetorix. Vicingetorix rallies a Gaulish army that engages Caesar. And Caesar, with his discipline, he engages the Gauls as needed, withdraws or builds defenses in other situations. Caesar engages Vicingetorix, and Vicingetorix calls upon all the Gauls to join him. Vicingetorix and Caesar engage each other in a series of battles until Caesar catches Vicingetorix at a city called Alesia. Caesar besieges the city. In a very Roman style, he levels a local forest and builds wooden walls and wooden spikes and booby traps all over the place, and he completely surrounds Vicingetorix. Well, Vicingetorix is in trouble and he'll be starved out unless help arrives. Fortunately for Vicingetorix, help does arrive. An estimated 100,000 additional Gauls show up on the outside of the perimeter walls to engage Caesar. Now Caesar's now completely outnumbered, and knowing they're coming, knowing that he surrounded Vicingetorix in the city, but there's an army coming after him to relieve the siege. And knowing that 100,000 or more Gauls are coming, Caesar actually continues building his siege works, and he builds wooden walls facing both sides, this time with booby traps on both sides, to, and he deploys his troops as needed. And after a 60-day siege, Caesar fights off the reinforcements, and Vicingetorix surrenders, effectively ending the war in Gaul. Rome has now extended its reach over modern France, thanks to Julius Caesar. Despite scattered outbreaks of warfare the following year, Gaul was effectively conquered. Plutarch claims that during the Gallic Wars, the army had fought against three million men. One million of these died, and another million was enslaved, subjugating 300 tribes and destroying 800 cities. With the Gauls subdued, the Senate and the proconsulship term is expired. Caesar is recalled to Rome by the Senate, Caesar goes south with only one of his legions, the 13th Legion, and parks his legion at the river Rubicon, the border of the Roman Republic. Does he return to Rome and face the doom of his judicial bodies that want to sue him for his injustices as consul eight years ago? Does he return as a normal Roman politician? Does he want to disappear in a semi-obscurity like Pompey the last eight years? Will Caesar be a Sulla? become dictator for life, or a humble Pompey, 
He ponders his fate. Caesar takes one step in the Rubicon, and he says the die is cast, as he marches across the Rubicon with the 13th Legion. What happens next leads to the death of the Roman Republic. We began the episode with Psalm 37.5. I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. We end with the rest of the verse, Psalm 37.36. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. These great ambitious men will leave a legacy on the earth. They truly will. The name Caesar it goes all through the history books. And so many want to be like him. So many emulate his rule. The Roman Republic will never be the same. It may even lose its the name Republic. He will leave an earthly legacy from Latin classes to West Point studies. But Caesar did not make a mark in heaven. This is reserved for those who serve God in his interest and not their own. Let us never forget this. In the next episode, we see what happens when Caesar arrives in Rome with the legion of his war veterans. Let's just say a civil war breaks out and breaks down the fabric of the Roman Republic. The Parthians push towards Jerusalem, and Herod rises in influence. All of this happens while true believers like Anna and Simeon watch it all. And the stage continues to be set. Other aspects continue to be formulated. While some believers pray, others find comfort in the law and pull out the laws of Moses as rules and regulations, though probably done out of a pure heart at first. Instead, it would be used for control and manipulation. The ruling party in Jerusalem is the Pharisees, and they lead the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling bodies of the state. And they studied the laws of Moses, and they listed out of them a list of to-dos and don'ts in the faith of God. And per Jewish studies, there was 613 commandments in the law, and many of these taught, were taught in the time of Jesus. These religious elite, the Pharisees, would use these commandments to their financial benefit and for their self-righteous purposes. It became so religious in the area of Judea that these whitewashed Pharisees, they would be furious when Jesus would heal on the Sabbath or he didn't wash his hands a certain way. These Pharisees found comfort in their religion and they received financial benefit too in their straining of temple taxes on the people. This religious elite would partner with Herod in the collection of taxes and their purpose of increasing their own treasure and power. And at the time of Jesus, there would be 613 commandments or so that the people would be commanded to um, obey to attain that price of heaven or that um, righteous feeling that the Pharisees would have. But at the same time, there were others like Simeon and Anna. They're the ones that would learn that a Messiah was coming. And Anna would pray about the ongoing injustices all day long, even watching the Pharisees and their mistreatment of the people. 
a world of paradoxes is building. And in an age when power was supreme, and in a culture of Rome, where power meant everything, yet no one was allowed to be king, the Messiah would come to be a subtle lamb, yet still a king.